Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 14? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as we have been saying, chapters 13 through 16 uh, constitutes Jesus' final teaching before his crucifixion, his farewell address, you might say. And in this final address to his disciples, he wants to comfort their hearts in the moment, but also to, pre also to prepare their hearts for the future. Some difficult days were coming, and he knew that. And so he opens chapter 14 with the words, Let not your heart be troubled. And admonition he repeats at the end of verse 27 when he said, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, as I said last week, it's interesting and revealing that the Lord didn't say to these 11 disciples that were gathered with him in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, uh, observing the Passover with him, he didn't say, let your hearts, plural, be troubled, but rather he said, let, let not your, excuse me, he didn't say, let not your hearts, plural, be troubled, rather he said, let not your heart, singular, be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Uh, this week, uh, at our small group meeting, uh, some in the group said that their Bibles, uh, the ESV, NIV, and even the Amplified Version, translated it hearts and not heart. And um, the New King James said heart, and I didn't even think to check the Greek. I, said, I thought all the translations said it. So I went back to check it, check the Greek in my Bible program, and sure enough, it is in the singular, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. As I said last time, the Holy Spirit writing through the Apostle John, I believe had a purpose in using the singular instead of the plural. And I believe it was to communicate to us that God doesn't love us or minister to us as a group. He loves us and ministers to us as individuals. Parents, if you have more than two children, family made up of more than two children, um, together they make up one, you're one family. Uh, but you love each child individually and relate to them as individuals because that's what they are, individuals. There is nothing as special as spending time with and ministering to your children one-on-one. -on -one. This, of course, is true for those of you folks they only have one child. I'm not leaving you out. I'm just making a point here. All right, just hang with me. But nothing communicates to your children just how special they are to you as when you take them aside personally and individually for a walk or a talk or for some other um, activity where it is just you and that child alone. Nothing ministers to a child's heart how much you love them as when you take the time to treat them as an, an individual, a special and unique person. Well, the same is true with God. Certainly, he loves all of his children, and all of us together make up the family of God, but there is something very special and even deeply powerful when he treats us as individuals, not simply as, you know, um, faceless members of the divine collective, I don't know, uh, but as individuals that he died for, saved, and now cherishes as his sons and daughters. And I think, guys, and I could be wrong, but why would the Holy Spirit use the singular? Let not your heart be troubled. He's talking to 11 guys. That, that right off the bat, that didn't sound right. Why would the Holy Spirit do that? And I believe, and again, I could be wrong, in a small way, on the night before he was ready to lay down his life for these 11 men, and for all of us down through history, right? But on the night in particular, he was ready to lay down his life for those 11 guys, those who loved him and whom he loved with all of his heart. He wanted to communicate to them, to each of them, that they were special to him and that he was concerned for their welfare individually. Individually. He didn't want any of them to face the future with a heart full of fear. And so he simply said, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be filled with anxiety and fear, speaking to them as individuals. 
Now, I repeat all of this from last week to say once again that you are precious to God. You, personally and individually, you're precious to God. In fact, you're so precious to Him that Jesus is something remarkable in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, when He said, God has numbered every hair on your head. Now, think about that for a second, okay? The, fa the Father knows every hair on each of our heads. And again, when you comb your hair, you've got to adjust the count. So it's, all, it's, a, it's a constantly moving target. Why would Jesus tell us that? Why is that important to God? Well, the numbers of the hairs on our heads is not that important to God, but it's important that we know this from God, that He cares about us so much if He takes the time to count every hair on each of our heads, which is constantly changing, how much more does he, is he concerned about the big things that affect our lives, right? I mean, what, what better way to communicate how special we are to God than to tell us that the smallest little detail about our lives he knows about, he cares about, which means he cares about us infinitely. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that the thoughts that God thinks about us constantly um, they're more than the stars of the universe and every grain of sand on all the beaches in the world. They're so numerous, God's constantly thinking about his thoughts toward us, so numerous, they can't even be numbered. Now look, when, when some of you hear, you hear Jesus say, you know, uh, don't be troubled, don't let your heart be anxious, and you might be thinking, well, it's easy for Jesus to say you know, he's God. He's got it pretty well nailed down. But, you know, me, uh, you know, I mean, I'm going through a lot right now. I got a lot of anxiety I'm dealing with. And, uh, you know, how, how can I even begin to obey that? Well, look, as we said, we first entered into chapter 14. The statement, let not your heart be troubled, in the Greek is a command. A command. And as I said, when we looked at that command in verse 1, God's commandments are God's enablements. In other words, God will never give you a command, but what he doesn't intend to give you the power to keep that command, right? He knows our frames but are but dust. He knows we're weak. I mean, we want to do right, and often we make God promises we just don't have the strength to keep. He knows that. He doesn't want us to do that. But when he gives us a command, when he, Jesus said to the lame man, 38 years lame, Get up and walk. I mean, he had to supply the power, John 5, right, for that man to get up and walk. Whenever the Lord gives us a command, he always supplies the ability, the power to keep it. So don't ever say, I can't keep God's commandments because they're just too hard. No, they're impossible. But through Christ, I can do all things, all things. To God, nothing is impossible. Jesus prefaced his command to not be fearful with regard to what was coming. Now, talking to these men, but all of us, talking to all of us, he prefaced this command not to be fearful with a promise. A promise. We studied it last week, verse 27. Before he gave the command, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he said, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, last week we devoted an entire message to the subject of peace. You can go online and listen to it. It's called Jesus' Peace. Jesus' Peace. He said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, right? But last week, in looking at the subject of peace, we just want to just quickly touch on again. We did look at Philippians chapter 4. Now, you don't have to turn to it. If you want to, it's chapter 4, starting with verse 6. But you know it, all right? Where Paul the Apostle said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God, guys, is the birthright of every child of God. It's our birthright to have peace. But it isn't automatic. We talked about this last week. Just because you get saved doesn't mean this peace automatically washes over you and it's, it never leaves you. 
Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he said, it's our responsibility to first pray. Bring everything to God, right? I mean, James says you have not because you what? You ask not. Oh, I don't have peace. Have you asked for peace? Well, no. Well, why don't you ask for it? Paul says, you know, we need to bring our things to the Lord, right? And, and, and all. And uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And then, see, it's a, it's a conditional promise. You do your part, God says, and then I will do my part, and I'll give you peace that passes human understanding. I love what Peter said. Again, you have to turn to it. I'll read it to you out of the Amplified. But 1 Peter 5, 7. He talks about us casting all of our cares on Jesus, right? And the Amplified amplifies it by saying all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, cast them all onto Jesus because God cares about you. He really cares about you. He cares for you affectionately and cares for you watchfully. So God cares, and God wants to comfort us. He cares, but I must what? Cast. i got to cast my cares on him. i got to leave them with him. We carry things around all the time, all these anxieties and worries and problems. It's all on our shoulders. You know, Jeremiah said something years ago, many years ago. He used to go around saying, the burden of the Lord, the burden of the Lord. And God said, Jeremiah, come here, son. You are, have a habit of saying something I really hate. The burden of the Lord. Jeremiah, I don't give any burdens. If you got burdens, they're burdens you're carrying. Don't, lay, don't blame me for your anxiety and your pressure and, and, and stress. You're not, you, give them to me, the burdens. I'll take care of it. This is what, and maybe Peter has that in mind. I don't know. Looking at the Old Testament, thinking maybe of Jeremiah. We've got to cast our cares on the Lord. And then, of course, we did look at Isaiah 26, verse 3 last time. You will keep him, her, in perfect peace, listen, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Guys who experience this peace, you need to have your thoughts um, stayed or fixed your mind focused on God because you trust him and you have absolute confidence in his character and in his promises, I mean, to you in his word. So some people would say, well, how, how do I, you know, how do I fix my mind uh, on God? Well, fortunately, the writer of the Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Guys, the reason that Christians sink into hopelessness and, de and despair when confronted with a seemingly impossible problem or circumstance is because, very simply, they take their eyes off of Jesus. We have somebody who modeled this for us in the New Testament. His name was Peter. Remember the storm they came into on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus was up in the mountain praying and, and they'd been battling all night, six, seven, eight hours maybe, trying to cross the, the Sea of Galilee because that's what Jesus said, cross over to the other side. They wanted to be obedient. A storm came, horrific storm. And they tried for six, seven, eight hours to, to row against this storm. Finally, they thought they were goners. At just about the moment they thought they were going under, here comes Jesus walking in the water. Thought he was a ghost initially. Then Peter identified him as uh, Lord Jesus, identified himself. And Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, let me get out of the boat and come walking to you on the water. And what did Jesus say? Sit down, Peter. Will you knock it off with your... No, he said, come. Look, God doesn't bless presumption. But he does honor steps of faith as long as he's in it. As long as he says, come, we can step out. We can step out of the boat. We can walk on water if he says, come to me, right? Now, here's Peter walking on the water. And for, I don't know, maybe a, a, a few seconds, here he is. All of a sudden, he, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the storm, the waves, the wind. And he starts to think, what am I doing? I'm walking on water. I can't do this. And he began to sink. 
If Peter would have kept his eyes on Jesus during that storm, he would have walked on water all the way to his Lord. Oh, that Peter, you know. But look, we want to find fault with Peter. At least he was willing to take a step in faith. That was more than could be said for the 11 other disciples that stayed in the boat and played it safe. You know what? Failure doesn't hurt the kingdom of God. Inactivity or rebellion, that hurts the kingdom of God. Failing is a part of the Christian walk. We learn to walk by falling. And we continue to learn by walking and falling sometimes and failing. It's all part of the growth process. And God will never will never chide you or rebuke you because you tried to do something that you believed he was in and you failed. He will always meet you with compassion. He will always say, look, next time keep your eyes on me. You were doing good while you, you and I were had icon, well, you were looking at me, not at the storm, right? How do we keep our eyes on Jesus? Sometimes we throw these things out and say, keep your eyes on Jesus. Okay, can you give me a little more, Pastor? Because you know, I, I don't quite understand all that that involves. Well, it's not brain surgery. It's very simple, right? How do you keep your eyes on Jesus during the storms of life? By continuing to focus on the promises of God and his word. Isn't Jesus the word? Didn't John begin his gospel in the beginning was the word? The word was with God and so on. We'll talk about that more in a second. Jesus is the word. When you focus on the word of God, on the promises of God, you want to start with a good, a good one to focus on? Psalm 91, great psalm. We read it this morning, awesome psalm. Full of great promises. Are you going through difficult times? Psalm 37 is another one. Focus on these things in God's word and cling to these things. By doing that, you're focusing on Jesus. And you will not sink during the storms of life. He will hold you up, right? All right, John 14, 28. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Well, very simply, what the Lord Jesus is saying is, look, I came from the Father. I became a man. I took on the limitations of a man. I left my glory in heaven, uh, Philippians 2, right? And I did it out of love. I came down to the earth because I love you guys, and I wanted to, to give my life that you might live forever with me in my kingdom, right? But now I'm going back to my father. You should rejoice. Don't be sorrowful. Uh, you know, but we often, you know, we have loved ones that we, Christians. My mom was a devout Christian for many years. And um, I think it's five years now. Four or five years she uh, has been with the Lord. Now, I, we still sorrow uh, uh, during the holidays and things because she was very special and how she did the holidays for her five children and so on. Um, and I miss her. That's why I, I'm sorrowful at times. But I, I rejoice for her. She's with Jesus. Oh, you know, and, and how could I be so selfish if somebody, if she was sick, we'll say, and suffering in some way. But I just didn't want to let go, you know. And I kept praying, God, keep her here, keep her here. What, what is that? That's a, a prayer of selfishness. I'm saying, I don't want to lose her. She's too special to me. She means too much to me to let go of her. And Jesus is saying, you really love me. Let go of me. I'm going back to the Father. And we do that with our loved ones who know the Lord, right? Look, Jesus returning to the Father would have, would have great benefits for him. We talked about that. But they would also it would also have great benefits for us. Now, guys, Jesus is is bouncing around from one topic to the other uh, in a very kind of staccato way because uh, he's already taught these things. He, he's not laying any new groundwork or anything. He's just reminding them of things he's already taught them over the course of three and a half years. So this morning we're going to be touching on things we've already talked about. It's okay. Peter says sometimes we need to put ourselves in remembrance of some basic things. So bear with me. But when Jesus said he was going to go back to the Father, and that was going to be a blessing for him, he said earlier in this chapter, it would also be a blessing for us. How? Verse 12. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. As we said a few weeks ago, what, what did Jesus, when we studied this, what did Jesus mean when he said that his disciples would do greater works than he did? I mean, how is that possible, right? Uh, I mean, Jesus walked on water. He cast out demons. He opened the eyes of the blind, healed the lame, fed thousands of people with small amounts of food, even raised the dead. I mean, how would it be possible for Jesus' disciples to do greater works than that? How would it be possible for us as his disciples to ever top what Jesus did? Well, we're never going to top what Jesus did. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's promising, right? Um, he's not promising that here. He, he, he didn't mean we would do greater works in the sense of more sensational works. I don't think you can get more sensational than raising the dead. He was talking about greater works in the sense of scope and magnitude. Because as we said a few weeks ago, when Jesus became one of us, he took on a human body. He was no longer the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the God who was everywhere, right? Omnipresent. He took on limitations. He could only be in one place at one time. Also, he took on limitations. He got hungry, thirsty, tired, and so on, right? But Jesus as a man could only be in one place at a time, either in Jerusalem or Jericho or uh, in the, up in the Galilee, what he was saying is, when I go back to my Father, I'm going to pray the Father, and he is going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon all of my disciples. Which means every single Christian, now across the face of the whole earth, has Jesus living in them. We are all part of the body of Christ, and therefore we minister in Jesus' name. And Jesus is now, is now not limited to a locality because he's in a human body, not in, he's in a glorified body, but poured out the Holy Spirit, who inhabits all of his people. And now the body of Christ is spread around the whole world. And everywhere in the world this morning, people are serving Jesus in some capacity. Now, when Jesus said in verse 28, my father is greater than I. And again, we're just re reviewing some of the stuff we've already looked at. But when Jesus said, my father is greater than I, there are groups that take Jesus' words to mean, this is what they believe he is saying, um, my father is a greater God than me. I am a lesser God than him. This is what is known as the Arian heresy. The Arian heresy. Arius taught that Jesus was a created being, that he was uh, greater than a mere mortal man, but less than almighty God. This is the heresy that the Jehovah's Witnesses have embraced and others like them. The, they're the ones we know, um, you know, we know the most. We heard their group a lot, okay? But when we, well, but as we saw when we first started studying John's gospel, John opened his gospel by telling us that the true Jesus wasn't a created being. Uh, John was very clear in telling us that the true Jesus has always and eternally existed as God and that he isn't less than God. He is equal with Almighty God. Turn to chapter 1 real quick. And here's what John said to open his gospel. For us to understand the Jesus he was going to be presenting, because there were false Christs in John's day as well. And so he wanted us to understand who the true Messiah, true Christ, uh, the true Jesus uh, is. He begins his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, when John says, And the Word was with God, the Greek literally says, And the Word was toward God. Well, what does that mean? The idea that uh, in the Greek that John is trying to express, or the Holy Spirit through John, uh, is that the Word, Jesus, was toward God, uh, before the Incarnation. What does that mean? He was toward God in the sense of being face-to-face -face with, eye-to-eye -eye with, on the same level with, or in other words, being equal with God. This is what the idea is. That's what the Greek is expressing. Prosponsion. It means he was eye-to-eye -eye with. Yes, toward God. But in the sense of uh, same level. 
right? He himself is equal with God. Jesus is not just a mighty God, but something less than Almighty Jehovah God. He is and always has been equal with Almighty God. After all, he is the second person of the Trinity. Along with the Father and Spirit, they are altogether one equal God. Now, again, this refutes Arian and Jehovah's Witness uh, heresy concerning Christ. And again, groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses try to tell us that Jesus, this is, this is rich, okay? I mean, you know, and they get away with this because a lot of folks don't know their Bibles. Oh, really? Is that true? You know, and, 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 and because this guy quotes a few verses of this gal comes to your door and quotes a few verses, you know, uh, you, people just automatically uh, believe what they're saying. And they count on this. One day, Pastor Eric, who teach, is pastor of a Calvary in the area, was over at my house for coffee one morning. Knock on the door, open it up. Here are two Jehovah's Witnesses, husband and wife. Come on in. Let's get you a cup of coffee. We had about an hour and a half conversation. Nice folks. Very nice folks. But, and, and to their credit, they came in. When they find out you're a Christian, often they leave. Because they depend on ignorance to sell their point, to, to indoctrinate, right? But it was a, we, we didn't pray for them to receive Christ. But it was a good, we had planted a lot of seeds. It was a very cordial, nice conversation. Um, but when JWs tell you that Jesus never claimed to be equal with God, folks, that is flat out untrue. I don't know if they're ignorant or just flat out lying to you, but it's untrue. Everywhere Jesus went, he proclaimed his equality with the Father. That was the hallmark of his ministry, right? He didn't go into a corner somewhere and whisper, Hey, by the way, I'm God. <laughs> he proclaimed it everywhere he went. I'll give you one example, John 5, 18. Therefore the Jews, the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The Jews knew what he was claiming when he claimed that God was his father. And the Greek, by the way, is uh, making himself, continually making himself to be equal with God. This was something he did everywhere he went, right? The equality of Jesus with Almighty God is a doctrine that is stated throughout the New Testament. And folks, it is essential for salvation. Deny it, you go to hell. Flat out, that's just the bottom line, okay? So, in verse 28, Jesus said, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back. See, this, I'm sorry, what they, what they actually, they'll take you to this verse. And... Um, when we say Jesus claimed equality with God, they say, no, he didn't. And they'll take you to John 14, verse 28, uh, where Jesus said, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And they say, right here, this proves it, right? Here. See, right here, this proves that Jesus is not uh, on the same level as Jehovah God. What the JWs teach is, he is a mighty God, but less than almighty Jehovah God. All right? And they will go to a passage like this to prove that Jesus out of his own mouth said he was a lesser God uh, than Jehovah God and not equal with Jehovah. But you see, when Jesus said, my father is greater than I, he was speaking in terms of his earthly ministry. I will have you turn to Philippians 2. But I'll read it to you out of the NLT. Now understand, in Philippians 2, Paul is talking about Jesus coming to the earth to um, fulfill his ministry. His ministry, okay? Philippians 2, verse 5. Though he, Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. See, Paul says it. The great apostle Paul says Jesus uh, in heaven was absolutely equal with the Father and Spirit. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave 
and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. He took uh, a submissive role on earth as a man to accomplish a mission. And that is he put himself under the Father's authority. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Hebrews 2 verse 9 tells us that when Jesus became a man, when he left his glory and privileges in heaven and became one of us, he became a little lower than the angels. Now that's just a pure statement of mission. When Jesus became a man, well, in his humanity, obviously angels are greater in the sense that they don't get tired. They don't get, they don't get uh, uh, hungry or thirsty, right? Uh, and they can't die. So in that regard, Jesus, became, as a man, became a little lower than them. But he voluntarily placed himself under the Father's authority when he did that to fulfill the mission of the redemption of mankind, the mission the Father had sent him to earth to accomplish. The Lord Jesus was not saying that the Father in heaven was greater than him in essence and being. They're the same God. Uh, we don't worship three gods, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We worship one God made up of three separate and distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all together one God. So Jesus could not be saying, the Father is greater than me in essence and being. The Bible never teaches that. But in authority, I've used this illustration before, when a young person joins the military, our Constitution says that we're, as citizens of the United States, we're all equal. Okay, But when you place, go to, join the military, you voluntarily place yourself under the authority of a commanding officer. In that regard, he's greater or she's greater than you. But not as a person. Because, you know, in America, we're all equal. That's, the, that's what our founding fathers wanted. That's what they wrote. Hasn't always worked out that way. I understand that. But I'm just saying, for the sake of illustration, okay? And um, the equality of Jesus with God is an essential doctrine for salvation. I'll have you turn to John 8, 24 quickly. We've already studied this, but again, Jesus brought it up. We'll touch on it again quickly. John 8, 24, he's talking to the Pharisees. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Notice that the word he in verse 24 is in italics, which means it is not in the original Greek. It was added by the translators for reasons of clarity. They thought by adding a he, it would help us better understand what Jesus was saying. Now, this happens all throughout the New Testament, and you, you find it in different places, and a lot of times it does help uh, to give more clarity to a passage. Here it doesn't clarify, it, it, it confuses, okay? Because it, it basically um, torpedoes what the impact of what Jesus was really saying to these guys, right? What he really said was, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, which means you're going to go to hell forever. Listen. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's what he really said. Now that sheds a whole different light on the ball game, because I am happens to be the name of God, God Almighty, right? Mm -hmm. Exodus 3, 13, 14, uh, God said to Moses, Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. Moses said, well, Lord, I don't even know your name. Who shall I tell him? Is, is Pharaoh is, who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? You tell him I am is sending you. I am is sending you. That's where we get Yahweh from. And by the way, it's a verb in the Hebrew. What does that mean? It means the becoming one. Well, I don't get it. It's a verb. You fill in the blank. You fill in the subject. Okay? Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's the idea is that whatever you need, you fill in the blank. God wants to become that to you. I am the great I am. I want to become to you whatever you, you need peace, then Jehovah Shalom, I will become your peace. You need righteousness, Jehovah Tzidkenu, I'll become your righteousness. Uh, you, whatever you need. Of course, the greatest thing we needed was salvation. So God became our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. His name, Yeshua, is short for Jehovah Shua, which means the Lord has become our salvation. God wants to become to us 
whatever we need. And by the way, he is the great I am, not the great I was or the great I will be. Many Christians are living in the past and living in the future, and they don't really know God in the present. Remember when Jesus was walking under the water and, uh, you know, and uh, thought he was a ghost? Peter starts walking out. He takes his eyes off the Lord, begins to sing, cried a quick prayer, Lord, save me. Lord picked him up. Uh, all of a sudden, they were by the shore. And he said to these guys, why did you fear? Basically, if you read the, the passage, he calls himself again the great I am. I mean, you know, did you forget who I am? I mean, God is, you know, God is always with us, ready to work. Some of you will live in the past of what God did years ago. Some people are always like, you know, yes, Lord, Martha, yes, Lord, I know in the resurrection of the, of the last day. I'm the resurrection and the life, Martha. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live again. If you live and believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe this? I am the great I am. Right now I want to be the God of miracles, the God of sustenance, the God of provision. Whatever you need right now, look to me, right? And again, this is the essential doctrine for salvation. Jesus said, if you don't believe I'm the great I am, you will die in your sins. You go to hell for eternity. That's why the cults run by the devil are always attacking the deity of Christ. Because they, they, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine with the devil as long as you believe in a false Jesus. Because Jesus can't save you, right? All right, back to verse, uh, back, back to John 14, 29. This is interesting. Verse 29, he said to these guys, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. What is the Lord saying here? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about prophecy. Prophecy. In, in this context, he was prophesying of his coming death, resurrection, and eventual ascension back to his Father in heaven. But, but let me just stop and say this, okay? Very important subject. Prophecy, guys, is the single greatest proof that the Bible you have in your lap this morning is, in fact, the word of the living God. I mean, why would God bother to tell us prophecy? He knows the future. He doesn't have to share it with us. Why does he tell us things that are coming? Because he wants to prove to us that he is God and the Bible is his word. This is the, the, the thing we have to understand. Um, prophecy is one of the strongest apologetics that we have that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is, it is a proof that the God of the Bible transcends or is outside of time and space. We live in a four-dimensional universe, right? Height, depth, width, and time. Time is a physical dimension. We are trapped in this four-dimensional universe. We cannot transcend it, but God is transcendent above his creation. He's not, he can enter the physical realm. He did through the incarnation, right? He is not connected or bound by the physical realm. He is completely other than his creation, right? And at being outside of time, God is not bound by time. He lives in, God is spirit. He lives in the eternal spirit realm. Years ago, Hal Lindsey gave a great illustration of this. I've never forgotten it. I've shared it with you a few times. We, we, are, we are bound by time. So we, we see history unfolding as it comes a day at a time, right in front of us, right? Now, of course, we know what has come, but we don't know what is coming. But, but think of it this way. When I was a kid, we used to have these great parades in our village, you know, and... Uh, Memorial Day Parade and Fourth of July Parade and Labor Day Parades and stuff. These were the highlights of your summer, basically, right? And I remember as a kid being all excited, love parades. So I'd be sitting on the curb and I'd be watching the floats come by and, the, and people playing instruments and horns and stuff, right? But pretty much I only saw what was right in front of me. That's how the thing unfolded, right? But say there was a person looking down on that parade from a helicopter, they could see the beginning, the middle, and the end of that parade as if it's happening all at once, because to them it is. Now say that person is a walkie-talkie in that helicopter, and you have one down on the ground, 
and he tells you, oh, hey, uh, there's a float coming in about 10 minutes of this or that. In a sense, that's prophecy, okay, in a roundabout way. He knows what's coming. He's not guessing. He can see it, and he's letting somebody know on ground level what, what's coming down the road. This is exactly what God did. God sees all of human creation as if it's going on right now. He lives in the eternal present tense. That's why he is the great I am, not the great I was, the great I will be. He's, everything is happening in the present tense for God. He sees Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden falling, and he sees the culmination of Jesus Christ reigning. It's all happening now. It, 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 it's God sees it. So consequently, he knows what's coming. Now to prove he's outside of time, transcendent, and that he is in fact God, he will... He doesn't use walkie-talkies, but he, he speaks to people. He has spoken to men and women who are prophets about what's coming. And God says, look, when I tell you what's coming, I'm not guessing. If anybody comes in my name and claims to be a prophet of mine and tells you one thing that doesn't come to pass, there are false prophets stone them. Check out Deut Deuteronomy 13. I know what's coming. I know what's, I don't, I'm not guessing. So this was God's way of stamping um, a, a stamp of authenticity on his word, that it is, in fact, the word of the living God. Uh, I told first service, uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite Bible teachers, Chuck Missler, who is with the Lord right now, he used to love to say this. He's a lot smarter than me, so he, he came up with this, and I'm just repeating what he said because I wouldn't have come up with this. But he said to prove God... To, for God to prove that he is who he claimed to be, he has given us the Bible, which is an integrated message system that has come to us from outside our time domain. Okay. Uh, yeah, he's pretty smart, okay? And uh, so that's why God filled his word with 27% of the Bible's prophecy. To let you know. And there are, there are and I, I don't have time to get into these. I'll read give you the references, right? Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. Isaiah 46, 9 to uh, 10. Isaiah 41, verses 22 and 23. God is basically saying, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. And everything I have prophesied will come true because I know what's coming. I know the end from the beginning. Again, because I'm outside of time, right? I am God. There is none like me. Only I can tell you future, uh, the future before it happens. And, and God says, this way you will know that I am God, this is my word. And when I make you a promise that it's going to come to pass, if you trust me, it'll happen. It'll happen, right? Now, Jesus had predicted. He's talking about prophecy here. He predicted his death and resurrection numerous times through the course of his ministry. Often the disciples didn't listen. They were not... Uh, they were not operating on the level of him dying. They wanted him to establish the kingdom and so on and so forth. But uh, he did mention that he was going to go to the cross, die on the third day, rise again at least three, uh, maybe four times in the gospel, right? And yet he is telling his disciples one last time in John 14, 29, uh, what was coming. That when it does happen, you might believe. Or in other words, when it finally happens, your faith will be strengthened. Uh, quickly, John 2, just quickly. Jesus prophesied at the beginning of his public ministry uh, about his death and resurrection. Now, they were clueless because he was talking to the Pharisees and scribes, and they, they, they were not spiritual men. They thought they were, but completely uh, unredeemed natural men okay and so they didn't have the ears of the spirit to tune into the spirit's voice but jesus said john 2 verse 19 he said to them destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up and the jews that's a reference to the jewish leadership again uh, pharisees scribes chief priests they were incredulous they said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days but John adds in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Kill this body in three days, I'll raise it up again. John's writing this 60 years after Jesus said those words. 
And in verse 22, it says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Prophecy brought them into a stronger faith. When you read prophecy in the... Guys, prophecy is unique to the Bible. You don't, you don't see the Quran having prophecies or... Uh, or um, the other holy books, I, my mind went blank, but the Quran is one. The, the Bhagavad Gita's uh, different holy books of different peoples, they don't have prophecy. Only the Bible has prophecy because only the Bible is the true word of the living God, right? But Jesus wanted to say this to them right now. Um, he wanted to tell them one last time he was going to die and rise again, eventually return back to the Father. He wanted them to know this because he wanted them to know he was not a victim. I mean, he, he knew in, in just a few hours their whole world was going to be turned upside down. In just a few hours, uh, their hope for Israel, the Messiah, who is going to bring the kingdom, is going to be hanging on a cross while they ran, ran for their lives and hid. He knows some very difficult days are coming. And so he wants to let them know up front, like he did with Peter. Remember Peter before the night is out, before the cock crows uh, twice you'll have denied me three times. Why did he let Peter know that? So that the, the, the blow would be softened. That Peter, you're not catching me off guard. You're not doing anything I didn't already know you were going to do. And, and the idea is here that, look guys, and I'll paraphrase, guys, in a very short time I'm going to be taken from you in death. But I want to tell you up front that this is all part of the plan of God. I'm no victim. I'm, I'm submitting to the whole thing because it's the Father's will. He said this very clearly in John 10. No man takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This is, you know, there are those who, who claim that Jesus, you know, got a little too big for his britches and was saying a lot of stuff and, about him being so glorious and going to be king and, and they wanted to get him crucified. This was all designed by the prophecy to encourage these guys. This was all in the plan of God. Okay, verse 30. He said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. This is very interesting, okay? He's talking about Satan, the ruler of this world. He's coming. He has nothing in me. His teaching time, guys, was now very limited, because at this very moment, Satan, the ruler of this world was working through Judas Iscariot to bring back the soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden and eventually put him on, in a mock trial where he would, be, uh, he would be judged and convicted and then killed. But the statement that Satan has nothing in me was Jesus' way of saying that he didn't have a fallen sin nature uh, passed down to him from Adam for Satan to work through to defeat Jesus. Everyone who has ever been born from Adam, we've all been born with a sin nature, all right? The Bible's very clear about that. Uh, it was passed down to us from Adam through our fathers, not through our moms. Uh, no, in Adam all die, not in Eve, okay? And, and the idea is that this sin nature was, that's how Jesus could have an earthly mother, but not be born a sinner with a sin nature. Because he had a heavenly father, not Joseph wasn't his dad, obviously. And to every person born into this world is born a descendant of Adam with a fallen sin nature. And that in, internal fallen nature is a beachhead, which the devil uses to, from, to get us from within, to tempt us, attack us, and ultimately to destroy us. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's trying to do. I mean, he can work in us he can whisper in our ears using our flesh to do things that he wants us to do that will dishonor god and so on now he can do that because he can work from within because he has something in us again our fallen sin nature he had nothing like that in christ therefore the devil couldn't tempt christ from within he had to tempt him from what from without in the wilderness right after Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, the devil came to him to tempt him. But he had to do it face to face because he couldn't do it from within. It also testified to the absolute purity and sinlessness 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father. Let me go back one second here. Okay. Um, verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Jesus showed his love, not only for the Father, but guys, for all of us, the whole world. By voluntarily going to the cross, he didn't hide, he didn't flee. When they came to arrest him, Peter took out his sword, and let's go, I'm going to fight for the Lord, right? As if the Lord needs our protection. And so when he slices off one of the high priest's servant's ears, right, Malchus? And Jesus took the guy's ear off the ground and stuck it back on his head and healed it. And Jesus said, Peter, uh, put your sword away. Don't you think at this moment I can call on my father and he would not send 72,000 angels to rescue me? Angels are tough guys. If you read in the Old Testament, one angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrians after dinner one night. You don't want to mess with angels. 72,000, I think that would have done the job. The point was, Peter, I don't need you to help me, to rescue me. This is all in the Father's plan. I'm submitting to it willfully. It's an act of supreme love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. Jesus was going to prove his great love for the Father and for all of us, fallen humanity, by going willingly to the cross. I mean, you ever doubt God's love for you? Look at the cross, right? All right. At this point, Jesus and his disciples, minus Judas, got up and left the upper room. At the end of verse 31, he said, Arise, let us go from here. And now they are on the move. Part of it is Jesus knows that Judas is coming with the soldiers. So let's leave here. They began to walk through the streets of Jerusalem. It was Passover time, which meant there was always a full moon at Passover. They had the light of the moon uh, to walk by. And as they were walking through the streets of Jerusalem toward the eastern gate, known as the Golden Gate, the gate that led across the Kidron Valley and onto the Mount of Olives eventually, Jesus at one point stops. And in the light of the moon, gives to his disciples one of the greatest discourses he ever gave. Sermon on the Mount, that was a great discourse for salvation. This is one of the greatest, if not the greatest discourse for those who are believers. It's called the Vine and the Branches Discourse. And we'll start looking at that, God willing, next week. Of course, if Jesus comes in the rapture, he'll take over. So you don't have to, you don't have to listen to me anymore, okay? Father, we thank you. For your word, it's an incredible thing, Lord. And we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. That you were a willing sacrifice. And you told us what was going to happen. That these things not take us by surprise. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.